0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox Talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more, this is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of May 10th, 2021. In this episode, we recap the action from Kansas City and, dare I say, the Chicago White Sox played their best baseball of the young 2021 season this weekend, sweeping the Kansas City Royals in large thanks to more outstanding starting pitching from the White Sox and the lineup continuing to beat up on left-handed starting pitchers. We'll discuss the starting pitching more in detail, I'll also track the progress of rookie Andrew Vaughn, and instead of discussing Tony La Russa's in-game decision-making, Let's look at his recent lineup construction and pitch plans as they have been getting better results lately. We'll have our first minor league report since 2019. Yay, minor league baseball is back. Preview the first White Sox vs. Minnesota Twins series and answer your questions in PO Sox. We've got a lot to discuss, so let's get started. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, and the co-host of the podcast is Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. What we thought could be the White Sox weakness to start the 2021 season, the starting pitching staff is now the team's strength, as we witnessed again this weekend in Kansas City.
2: Yeah, and uh, it's kind of bizarre just how, or just which pitchers are carrying the load. Uh, Yeah, I I think if he said the starting pitching was a strength, I would imagine that Lucas Giolito would be leading the charge, but he's been allowed to take a back seat because other guys have stepped up. And that's
1: uh, on one hand, it's a little bit worrisome, but I think more than that, it's exciting. Well, we'll get into the worrisome in a moment, but just to address as far as the White Sox starting pitching, how well they have been throwing the baseball. In the last 12 games, the White Sox starters have a 2.25 ERA. They've only allowed 28 runs in their last 104 innings pitched. Two of those 28 runs were unearned with 114 strikeouts to 35 walks. And the starters have only allowed eight home runs. That is pretty impressive. And the fact that we talked about with Luis Robert missing significant time due to the torn right hip flexor that he needs to stay off his feet and let heal as the White Sox are opting not to have surgery for that injury. We were concerned about the offense. The offense may struggle to put up four runs. But if you have starting pitching like this right now, Jim, where opposing teams are struggling to muster any type of run production against the White Sox starters, well, that makes life a lot easier for a White Sox offense that, has great games and then bad days. It seems mixed in within a given week.
2: We've, we've talked about it a lot when it comes to uneven lineups and how pitching can carry them. And you know, this will be like the 15th time I've said it in over the last 15 months. But the uh, Cleveland Indians, just how they operate with a top-heavy lineup, really nothing in the bottom, really nothing in the outfield uh, whatsoever. And yet just the strength of the pitching and enough bullpen has allowed them to get by and win central divisions on that formula. So the White Sox, you know, they, I would say the top of their lineup is maybe, I would say the way they produce is a little less reliable than say the way the uh, Cleveland lineup went about it with you know, more walks, more, uh, fewer strikeouts, uh, more of a, an ability to uh, generate uh, speed with their power. Uh, the White Sox didn't have speed guys and power guys, but um uh, seldom do the two mix so you know maybe that's why Cleveland was able to repeat it a little bit more frequently a little bit earlier uh in their players rises but um you know what the White Sox have now certainly is enough to deal with especially like say if uh this core can hold until maybe July or August when you know maybe Luis Robert is back maybe Eloy Jimenez is back um you know they don't have depth immediately right now but they might have depth later in the season
1: so let's play a quick game. And for those listening, you can play the same game as well, because as a starting pitching unit, they are performing well, but some are performing better than others. So this is what I'm asking you, Jim. Rank the White Sox starting rotation in quality of starts based on the eye test from the pitchers that are performing the best to the pitchers that are not performing the best. Okay. Say by eye test, I would say
2: Carlos Rodon first, Dylan Cease second, Dallas Keuchel
1: third, Lucas Giolito right behind him, and then Lance Lynn fifth. Interesting, because I would have said Lance Lynn second ahead of Dylan Cease, only because I'm trusting Lance Lynn's stuff a little bit more than Dylan Cease in his last two starts. Why Lance Lynn fifth? I would say just because it seems like, you know,
2: the uh, command isn't quite there yet. He's just coming off the injury. So I guess I'm factoring the the, the recent Mm -hmm. IL stint into it to where, like, you know, that affects my trust. But I think if he never went on the IL, I might rank him uh, fourth. It's hard to tell, like, Dallas Keuchel. uh, I want to say, you when you watch him pitch, I would say fifth. But just in terms of effectiveness and how Dallas Keuchel operates, like, you have to trust the results at some point. I mean, his career is kind of based on trusting the results or generating enough results to trust. So I think I would say that, you know, he's more or less the guy the White Sox thought they were getting. So, um, you know, he's not impressive the way he goes about it, but he's doing it right now. So the ground balls are there. You have to trust it. So I would say probably Lancelin fourth, Giolito fifth. Okay. But with the injury and just not, not seeing a classic Lancelin start uh, since the injury, I would say okay. fifth.
1: All right, I could I could buy that. Hey, Wade Miley just threw a no-hitter. So I'm sure if Wade Miley could throw a no-hitter, Dallas Keuchel's got a no-hitter uh, in him as well, yeah. uh, <laughs> despite the way that he's been pitching. And it may be a two-strikeout no-hitter. But it could happen as the way this season has progressed. Uh, for me, I have Carlos Rodan. I like the way that Lance Lynn has been throwing uh, this season. Dylan Cease is third, but the arrow is really pointing up. By the way, he just signed up for Codify. Uh, We spoke with Michael Fisher before the (laughs) season, so there's another client on Codify. Yeah, now his command's good enough to where he could actually use it. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Lucas Giolito and Dallas Keuchel. But both of us do not have Giolito in the top three. Which brings a question from one of our Patreon supporters, Rob Liedemann. And Rob is asking us Jim is there enough of a sample size to see what's quote unquote wrong with Giolito? to my untrained eye he's starting to look just a guy out there Uh you know there's enough of a sample
2: size I think in 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 the sense that um you know he we know what you know is not working for him we're not working as well for him this year I think the season's still long enough to where um you yeah, know there's still a little bits of uh, You know, know, a little bit of time for him to restore some stuff, regain some stuff. Right now, it just seems like the fastball changeup combination just isn't dynamic in both directions. Like, the fastball is lacking a little bit of power, uh, especially, like, I think, you know, the ability to get 96 isn't quite there. So, high fastballs at the top of the zone are being fouled back or gotten on top of the way they weren't last year. And I think the changeup is just not, um, well, I think, you know, hitters are planning for it a little bit more than they were last year. Like they're, they're basically like focusing on it first. And so they're a little bit more effective against it. But I also think there's like a little bit of, um, you know, like it doesn't have the same kind of parachute effect that it had last year. I think the speed's up on it, like one tick and the fastball's down, the changeup's up. So you're not getting the speed uh, separation you were the way you were last year. Like instead of I'm looking at it right now, yeah, the, Last year, it was a 13-mile-per-hour difference, 94 and 81, and now it's down to 12, basically 93.5 and 81.7, so depending on where he is in the start, like it's just a little, you know, a couple-mile-per-hour difference in the difference, and it doesn't seem like a lot. I mean, you know, first of all, I would say like a 12-mile-per-hour difference is still a lot for any pitcher between the fastball and changeup, but the way Gialito deploys that changeup, how aggressively, how, um, you know, I would say just... Yeah, you know, aggressively in terms of usage and also location. Like he doesn't really he doesn't discriminate in terms of where he throws it. He would get away with high change of all the time. Now I think without that kind of parachute effect that it had last year or the last two years, it it seems like that just it's a little bit more of a normal pitch, and if they're keying on it, they're not as uh thrown off just by the speed difference. And the sliders had to step up a little bit and the slider's not quite there yet, so it seems like that fastball changeup combination isn't as imposing. I think he's better than just a guy. Like, just a guy I would say is like maybe, uh, you know, four or five, yeah, somebody you'd never hear of. And I think he's still good enough uh, against certain lines, especially. Like, the Royals tend to have a, a contact oriented approach that makes any pitcher, um, you will get fewer strikeouts than they normally would. Um, but i think you know going forward the slider he's gonna to have to get more out of that or he's gonna to have to find more power in the fastball or the changeup's gonna to have to come down but either way it seems like he's kind of trying to find his power and this is me just you know diagnosing it from uh you know my couch or whatever but it seems like mm-hmm. in order to try to find more power in the fastball he's kind of gaining more power on the change-up which is not what he wants so he's not quite himself out there or the 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 himself that he was before isn't getting the results that he's used to, and so he's trying to feel it out a little bit. But here's hoping the slider becomes a bit more of a weapon, so that way uh you know hitters have to scout something else.
1: I agree with you, Jim. I, I have the same viewpoint with Giolito that for him compared to Dylan Cease and Carlos Rodon, where Cease and Rodon have that high velocity fastball, and their second best pitch is their breaking pitch, the slider. You have some type of break between those two and they're trying to throw a changeup as their third best pitch right now uh, to give some type of off speed to opposing hitters right now for opposing hitters. They're sitting in the box. They could spit at the slider because G. is not throwing it often. And when he does, it's very low in the zone. So it breaks away from the tunnel, the fastball real quick. So it is based pretty much the velocity If I sit back and wait for the changeup, like we saw in the first at bat against Jorge Soler, 93 is an average fastball in the major leagues. That would be a 50-grade fastball uh, for those that want to get into scouting and for those that read as far as scouting analysis and scouting books. So gilito has got a 50 grade fastball. Jorge Soler has a quick enough bat that if he's sitting back waiting for the changeup gym. He could still foul off those 93 mile per hour fastballs waiting for Giolito to throw that changeup. Now, ultimately Soler ended up getting out, but this is where pitches are starting to pile up on Lucas Gilito, And he's got like 90 pitches and he's heading into the fifth inning and now he's not going deep into games. And, this is where I I agree with you. He needs to start throwing the slider more, and it needs to do a better job of tumbling with the fastball. But the slider is a below average pitch that he's tr- he's trying to, you know, get better results out of it. Where the changeup is by far and away his best pitch. But as you mentioned, like his spin rate is about 100 RPMs more than it was last year, and you want less spin on your changeup when you're throwing it. And as Jim mentioned, you want that velocity difference. But Ethan Katz, as far as the pitching coach for the White Sox, during White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000 before the game, had his press conference and told the media that he's really happy with the way that Lucas Gilito is throwing the ball. And Ethan Katz is thinking that he's getting good results. Uh, but Lucas Giolito, as far as his box score results, Jim, Don't all it really doesn't look all that great. And then we go see the results that Carlos Rodan is getting right now. You know, on his fastball for Carlos Rodan, opposing hitters are hitting 0.089 against that fastball. Uh the average fastball for Carlos Rodan has increased from 92.8 miles per hour to 95. So we're seeing big jump in stuff. From Carlos Rodan and even though Dylan Cease as far as his velocity has dropped one and a half miles per hour off his fastball he is getting better results this year uh, where in 2020 opposing hitters slugged 500 off Dylan Cease's fastball they're only slugging 351 against his fastball and Cease is getting an increase of 7% off that fastball so back to the fastball for Lucas Giolito I mean, it is a half a mile per hour difference right now in 2021 to 2020. As far as a simple short-term fix for his next start, which is going to be against the same Kansas City Royals team, Jim, mm-hmm. should we focus more on the fastball success Giolito's getting?
2: Yeah, maybe. Um, I'm, I'm looking at his baseball savant page right now. It just seems like the fastball is just, you know, it's a little bit off in terms of velocity, a little bit off in terms of just um you know the spin rate carry like what you mentioned with the uh, changeup up is same thing just you know the spin rates off just the way it's coming out of his hand is just not quite with the same uh oomph that it had the year before so it would seem like the fastball is gonna have to be necessary in order for him to you know just operate because i think it's hard to go away from it when you pitch the high fastball um when, when you're oriented around the high fastball and it, they're not doing a ton of damage on it. seems like he may as well stick with it, but I think the sliders, you know, one, another thing that jumped out to me too, is he hasn't thrown a curveball yet. And we heard about that in spring training, that he's working on this curveball at the downer. Uh, I think they were calling it like something with a straight drop down, you know, with a little bit more uh, vertical tilt um, in order to grab strikes. He hasn't thrown that at all this year. So besides the fact that the slider is just throwing it like, you know, uh, a third pitch, uh, by far, like only 15%, there is no curveball know, this year. So he's really, you know, put everything in the fastball changeup basket and, um, you know, just not getting the same results. So it would seem like the fastball is going to have to be there, but also the slider, I think, is going to, have to step up. Either that or just somehow resume or return to the power and, and, I guess, dynamic qualities that those two pitches had last year.
1: Yeah, wow. I didn't even know this. Opposing hitters right now are barreling up lucas gilito seven percent more than last year i mean they are hitting lucas gilito hard when you're looking at his baseball savant numbers I, i think it might also just be strategy opposing hitters are ready for lucas gilito and oftentimes it looks like lucas gilito wants to run the 2020 game plan i can't blame him jim because it was so successful for him last year but maybe that's kind of what's leading to his struggles is that the league has adjusted to him, especially in division rivals, and they're ready for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah I'm looking
2: at his numbers too and on his baseball swap page. And slider, you know, the exit velocity in the slider is, you know, up to uh, 92.2 miles per hour. The fastball is actually higher than that. So. As much as he might not like his slider this year, or might be not getting great results on it, it seems like it's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing to where like, well, you don't get confidence until you throw it, but you got to throw it to get confidence. So it just, it's, uh, yeah, it's a little bit like he's, he's a little bit caught in a quandary and without getting, I think, you know, maybe if he got shelled again, like he did uh, in Boston to where like might have a come to Jesus moment, but if that's the only one where it was really a disaster and he's getting by the rest of the way, it seems like, you know, may as well just try to, Yeah, you know, it'd be one thing I suppose if he could look at the fastball velocity and change up and see nothing wrong with either pitch mm-hmm. to where it might cause a change in game plan. But uh, as long as there's something to point to, it seems like, you know, maybe he's just driven to try to get more, you know, try to restore those pitches mm-hmm. to what
1: they were. Well, his next start again is going to be Kansas city against the Kansas City Royals at home next weekend. So hopefully in his next bullpen he'll make another adjustment because if you told me two months ago in early March that Carlos Rodon and Dylan Cease are the two best starting pitchers for the White Sox after the first 32 games of the season, I would tell you the White Sox are screwed. Uh, But that's not the Mm -hmm. case. Carlos Rodon and Dylan Cease are pitching awesome. And uh, they had another tight battle again for the Sox Machine Golden Cog, the player of the week. And once again, Dylan Cease edged out Carlos Rodan just by a few percentage points. As If you follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine, you can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. You can participate as far as the voting. And I think Dylan Cease is three for three night in Cincinnati. Um, put him over the edge, but both of them have been pitching very well. Where Lucas Giolito right now is not the same Giolito we saw last year, but he's still putting the White Sox in a position to win. He did that in Kansas City, Um, but we're hoping to see a little bit more of the guy that was projected to be the best starting pitcher in baseball from the projection systems uh, than the guy that's currently got a 4.54 ERA uh, to start the 2021 season. All right, so let's move from the starting pitching over to the offense and specifically Andrew Vaughn, as he's starting to get more comfortable with the speed of play, Jim, in the major leagues. In his last nine games, Vaughn is hitting 290 with a 343 on base percentage and he's slugging 419. And he's making good defensive plays in left field. He made a sensational diving catch on Sunday that I was blown away that he was able to make. I had no idea he had that type of athletic ability. And it certainly puts into question if Aloy Jimenez comes back, what are the White Sox going to do? But before we answer that question, uh, you've been hinting about this coming from Andrew Vaughn. He still hasn't hit a home run, but I feel that's coming soon. How would you grade Vaughn's progression as of late? It's been nice.
2: It's been you know professional looking um as, as you mentioned the diving catch like once the route wasn't the best on that that play and i feel like i'm, I'm nitpicking a little bit but when i saw the route as kind of circuitous rounding it off it seemed like based on his initial steps like he wasn't positive that he could catch these planning more to kind of you know keep it in front of him or keep it from rattling around the corner and escaping him and then you know his feet you know drew near to the ball and realized like, okay, I can actually do this. And then I thought when you know, he was getting ready to dive, I just thought, oh no. <laughs> like I thought he got kind of caught caught in between based on how he started that route, but he took a nice aggressive finishing line to the ball and yeah, just had the coordination and uh, I guess had the technique in terms of just keeping his eyes, you know, his head level head from rattling too much in order to complete the catch. But yeah, the play in left field has been good, you know, especially relative to other left fielders who have been disastrous. Like, you know, he the, the catches look good. You know, they, they look more sound um, technically. Um, you know, his catches early on, like he didn't, hadn't really made uh, any blatant errors and really only, you know, dropped one ball or, or didn't catch one ball that he should have. But uh, even some of his catches early on were just adventurous, and you know the footwork got tangled up in the end, or uh, you know, just had to reach in an awkward way that most outfielders don't. But now I think it's starting to come together. The you can you can definitely see him learning, and the plate appearances are you know getting better too. Um, the the power is a little bit disappointing. That just like you know, kept hitting the warning track in Ed Kaufman and and. Uh, when, when i thought he got hold of it so you know the results aren't quite there and you know i'm not quite sure if that's a a product of the ball and it seems like you know that's part of it is just the ball isn't sailing the way it is um but here's hoping that as the weather comes along and and the weather heats up and the ball travels a bit better that vaughn swing you know the swings that he's putting on at coffin stadium that were dying on the warning track will play well at uh, guaranteed rate right field because you know the the the, the contact is is high quality. He seldom looks overmatched, and when he looks overmatched, they're by pretty good pitchers. Like he's not getting beat up by just any righty or any anybody with one pitch. He seems to have a pretty good idea of what he's doing, uh, you know, as the as the series go by.
1: So let's get into the hypothetical of what will happen once Aloy Jimenez returns, and this is obviously the assumption that Yuma Mercedes continues to hit the way that he's been hitting. We got this question from our Patreon supporter David and David's asking how would you manage the playing time of Andrew Vaughn, Jose Abreu, Yerma Mercedes and Aloy Jimenez when Aloy Jimenez is back.
2: Well, you know, first of all, I think when it comes to Jimenez and just, you know, rehab stint and watching Adam Engel with struggle through his rehab stint, um, it's it's not a whole you know, it's not a question I'm worrying about right now to the point where like that feels like it should be my answer. Like, don't worry about it. If the Sox have too many hitters, thank God, because, uh, you know, we wanted them to have that problem all winter or at least, uh, you know, all spring. And, you know, just now they're, they need all the hitters they can possibly have. But I think if things are going the way they are and uh, Elo Jimenez looks the way he did last year, um, you know, maybe not quite the guy who looked positioned to take a leap and be one of like the American League's best hitters and Definitely be the White Sox best hitter, but just be, um, you know, the the force that he was for good chunks of the 2020 season. I would think that right now, I would probably, you know, should Vaughn keep progressing? I think Vaughn needs to show a little bit more power to feel like he's, um, you know, you're making more of an impact than Jimenez at the plate. But I think, you know, should Vaughn progress to where he's got like a slugging percentage, like between 450 and 500? Then I would say, like, Vaughn, you know, for the you know the more reliable glove that won't hurt himself in left field, because I think that's a big concern with Jimenez is once he comes back, like, do you want him in the outfield again? Uh, I would stick with Vaughn as, like, the most time left fielder. And then at that point, you know, either, um, you know, if you want to play Jimenez left, maybe try Vaughn and right for a game. Like, in between now and Jimenez coming back, or when you can kind of get a timetable on Jimenez, maybe it doesn't, you know isn't a terrible idea to just try Vaughn and write one game or, you know, for six innings if they happen to get a lead or, or, you know, just a situation that makes sense depending on who needs to sit just to see what he looks like. And especially if Eaton is looking a little bit wobbly, um, which I anticipate he might based on just the way his legs are are working or not working for him right now. Uh, so that's one option. Uh, the other thing is, is just with, you know, Mercedes, he showed signs of cooling off, but then he came roaring back. So you know maybe he's adjusting to some adjustments here, or, uh, playing tug of war with pitchers right now. But if he's show signs of being you know like you know, having to rely more on the two strike swing, then I think he can mix in Jimenez as well at DH. But um, I would not be afraid if Jimenez looks fully functional after a lengthy rehab stint to take at bats away from Mercedes and give them to Matt Jimenez. I think right now if you have three bats for two positions, terrific. Keep everybody healthy, get them off their feet, uh, rotate them through DH. But I think you know when it comes to left field, I just don't think I want to see Jimenez out there if you still need his bat for depth.
1: Yeah, I think I have more confidence. I can't believe I'm saying this. I have more confidence that Andrew Vaughn in his defense ability in left field now than Aloy Jimenez. Which you know that's a discussion for a later time regarding as far as the 2022 roster construction. But I, I at this moment I'm not expecting Jose Abreu to be on the 2023 White Sox. And if Vaughn moves from left field to first base, maybe that gives an opportunity for Jimenez to go back into the outfield. Or the White Sox address that position in a different manner. We just saw Danny Mendick hold his own. I was impressed by the way that Danny Mendick played right field in last. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of games, uh, he's got range and he's yeah. not afraid of the wall. And he was able to track some deep flies uh, in those last two games and was able to make the catch. So I guess playing in the quarter outfielder outfield positions, Jim, is a lot easier than I thought, because Andrew Vaughn and Danny Mendick <laughs> are making it look easy, which is not a good sign for Aloy Jimenez, who made it look really hard.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think with, you know, thinking about Vaughn and Wright, like Mendick had no experience in right field professionally. Like that that start on Saturday was his first start ever in right. But he had some games in left field, um, you know, nine in the minors. And so I'm inclined to think, you know, Mendick's got more speed, but he's not terribly fast uh, to where, like, if you feel better about Vaughn's routes and left, and, you know, I'm thinking by the time Jimenez comes back, you should see more polish in his routes. But I think they're already improving to where, like, you know, I'm not noticing him. I would say that's like the, the highest compliment you could pay an average left fielder is that, you know, he looks average in most regards, like average in range, average in direction, average in coordination, uh, average in throwing. And I think his arm can play in right too. Like he's got an above average arm to where it um, might be worth trying. You know, I don't think he's going to hurt himself because he hasn't hurt himself in left. So I think it's just more a matter of you might have a case where he takes the wrong angle and gets past him and he turns a single into a triple, but I think, you know, in a game or, or two in, you know, mid uh, you know, June or July, that error, you know, the White Sox have endured worst, <laughs> endured far worse right field play for a lot longer to where if you play, you know, uh, Vaughn and Wright and it goes terribly, everybody will be able to get past it. And, I, you know, it was, I enjoyed seeing Mendick and Righteous because it was better than seeing Billy Hamilton out there. And I think uh, just, just the difference in lineup, like, I think Mendick made Laeri Garcia look better in the lineup just because, you know, I think part of the frustration with Garcia is that Garcia was also often teamed up with the Hamilton. So you just have, like, you know, if Garcia doesn't do it, then you have Hamilton right behind him, which just, and you don't count on Hamilton at all, so you just get more frustrated with Garcia not doing the job. But when you have like Mendick backing up Garcia, a better hitter, who's especially hitting well right now, I think Mendick tends to start strong and kind of fade. Uh, but right now, he's doing his job. That It just feels like he adds a little bit more to Garcia, or at least takes some of the heat off Garcia in the bottom of the order because uh, the the lineup just doesn't end after seven now.
1: Well, he had a good two games. And I think this goes back to the conversation that we had in Sox Machine Live. You know, the troubles with Tony LaRusso with his in-game decision-making costing the White Sox at his bad patterns with his endgame decision-making. But let's talk about his pregame decision-making as far as lineup construction, his pitching plans, having Danny Mendick play in right field. I feel like in the last couple of weeks, this is where it's starting to get better uh, for the Chicago White Sox. And I, I am hoping, Jim, with the way that Andrew Vaughn has been playing, to come full circle with this conversation, We see Andrew Vaughn in the lineup every day and it's more of a rare appearance to see someone like Jake Lamb or Billy Hamilton in the starting lineup. I understand this upcoming Friday. It's a doubleheader against Kansas city. Sure. Billy Hamilton and Jake Lamb may get a start in one of those two games. I understand it because it's four games in a three day weekend and they got to hop on the plane after the game on Sunday and they got to go straight up to Minneapolis. So you're looking at 10 games in nine days. So I get it. Some guys are going to need a day off in this upcoming stretch for the White Sox. But with the way that Vaughn has been playing, it seemed like he had to earn his playing time from LaRussa. And I'm hoping what we just talked about with the way that Andrew Vaughn has been playing the last nine games, that LaRussa trust him more, and he's in the lineup every single day. And I think we're starting to see that, especially in this past series against Kansas City.
2: Yeah, I think there are two, you know, basically two things that um, La Russa can do before the game to get people off his back. One is play Vaughn every day. And then, uh, you know, I, I think the Mendick part was the other one, just not having Garcia and Hamilton there, like, Garcia right now is inevitability, like or Hamilton, I should say, because you might see Hamilton take a Garcia start here or there, but uh, center field is just really limited right now for the White Sox. But, you know, with those two guys, you know, playing one spot, okay. Um, but just having two of them so uh, prominently featured, or have things weird things like having Jake Lamb, um, you know, playing for no real reason, or having Nick Williams batting in the middle of the order, like that stuff, I think, was what irritated people because they're not major leaguers like, you know, maybe Jake Lamb can take a major league walk, but right now the rest of his skills aren't there. You know, Nick Williams, not a major leaguer, fringe guy, replacement level, Billy Hamilton, not a major league hitter, Larry Garcia, the way he was giving himself up with bunts didn't feel like a major league hitter. So I think with Vaughn stabilizing with him, proving himself, you know, over the course of weeks and through benchings, or at least very conservative playing time distribution that, Hopefully he's gotten there. And then once Vaughn's in the lineup, it's just the criticism dries up. And I think I, you, you saw some bad faith arguing on Twitter, like there's some people saying, oh, you know, um, you know, the White Sox scored eight runs in the first inning. and you're like, oh, Tony La Russa must be a piece of garbage you know, uh, from people who were defending him. And I just think, you know, there, there are two things, and I think you were, you're getting to this with the way you described it, was La Russa before the game and during the game. And I think those are two different, you know, animals but right now, before the game, as long as Vaughn's playing every day and earning it and getting a chance to fail and bounce back the way Mercedes has gotten a chance to have a few weaker games and bounce back, then uh, it's really hard to complain.
1: That's, yeah, that's pretty much what I was getting at. As long as he continues to do what he has been doing and having Andrew Vaughn in the lineup every single day, limit the amount of starts for Jake Lamb and Billy Hamilton, I think White Sox fans can handle that better. And I think the White Sox are going to perform better, like we saw this past weekend. And to come full circle from the intro, I thought this was the best weekend of baseball the Chicago White Sox have played in this young season, Jim. And they are now 19-13, and a game ahead of Cleveland in the American League Central. And I do think that this is the type of play we can continue to see from them after the off day on Monday when they start you know, this 10 games in nine day stretch against Minnesota and in Kansas city in, in the next week. And I, I just hope that La Russa continues down this path because his lineups in April and his playing, you know, divvying out playing time, it really felt like it was extended spring training in some ways, Jim, that he wanted to give guys opportunities to play. It worked out with Yerba Mercedes. And when Yerma Mercedes started to hit and didn't stop hitting, La puts Mercedes in the lineup every single day. And I'm hoping this is going to be the same thing with Andrew Vaughn.
2: Yeah, the the Kansas City series was heartening, you know, not just because it's sweep, but also because, you know, they extended a five-game losing streak into an eight-game losing streak like we talked about last time, saying that, uh, you know, the uh, people who might be afraid of like law of averages, it's also just a kind of gambler's fallacy thing to where like, you know, if a team's losing, there's probably a reason why they're losing and there's no reason to not try to extend that losing streak and it's the kind of series where um you know in past years when I you know the White Sox had less talent and in previous years too, like say like the last or I guess the first rebuild that stalled in twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen where you look at the American league and you see like a lot of teams projected better and you see, you try to wonder like, okay, baseball's a zero sum game. Uh, the league has to end at 500. Where are these losses coming from? And, you know, it's kind of like the saying, you know, if you, if you can't spot the sucker, it's you. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping that the way, you know, I looked at this Royal series and so thought, you know, the way they're playing, the way they're kind of stealing some wins, the, how wobbly their pitching staff looked. You know, I looked at the Royals, like, I think they're the suckers. And, this series, they did not quite look ready for the White Sox. And I'm hoping that there's more where that came from, because that was very refreshing to see a, a team that, uh, you know, had pulled pulled the wool over the White Sox eyes in previous years, just had nothing for them.
1: Well, the White Sox will be having their first series against the Minnesota Twins this upcoming week at home as the White Sox have started this gauntlet of the schedule. They are 3-0 in the first 68 games of the 76-day critical stretch for the White Sox that if they want to run away with the American League Central, this is a good opportunity to do so. And with the Minnesota Twins coming into town wounded, they are not playing good baseball. Even more opportunity for the White Sox to continue add more ground between them and their chief rival, in this year's American League Central. But coming up next on the Sox Machine Podcast, Jim has the Minor League Report. Welcome to the Minor League Report,
2: our weekly look at the highs and lows of the White Sox farm system. Thanks to the six-game series and off days every Monday, every White Sox affiliate should have played a similar number of games, making it an easy schedule to compartmentalize for you neat freaks out there. For instance, after one week of the season, every affiliate has played six games against the same opponent. The Barons were the only ones who saw any merit in the new schedule, going 5-1 against the Biloxi Shuckers, with the lone stubble being the game where they walked 13 batters in one inning. In fact, Birmingham won more games than the rest of the system combined, as Charlotte, Winston-Salem, and Kannapolis finished a combined 3-15. The problem with the Barons being the only thrivers is that the Barons also have the least exciting roster of the bunch, as Micah Adolfo and Cade McClure are the only prospects with real name recognition on the team. That said, nobody knows exactly what players might have progressed or declined after a whole year off, so when a 24-year-old like Tyquan Forbes opens his season by going 6-for-17 with a couple of homers, it's worth keeping an open mind, especially when there aren't many other players soaking up the spotlight. Adolfo, for instance, struck out 10 times over his first 20 plate appearances, although he did homer as well. On the pitching side, McClure minimized the damage of hard contact in his first start, allowing one run over five innings while striking out seven. The real standout pitcher was Ofredi Gomez, who has struck out 11 batters while allowing just four walks and zero hits over five innings. The White Sox signed the 25-year-old Gomez to a minor league deal after the Royals let him go, but Gomez spent nearly his entire time in Casey's organization as a starter. The White Sox are using him in shorter multi-inning bursts, and he's 2-for-2 in that role thus far. A guy like Gomez is more of a shot when the Charlotte bullpen is getting off on the wrong foot. Ryan Burr has thrown two scoreless innings to start his season, but Tyler Johnson, Zach Birdie, and Jimmy Lambert have thrown a combined five outings, and all of them have been ugly. Felix Paulino, another candidate for relief work at some point, gave up seven runs over two-thirds of an inning in his first start of the season. Jonathan Stever, who threw three scoreless innings in his AAA debut, is the only pitcher of note to start his season with an outing to be proud of. Charlotte's position players are a mixed bag, but at least there are some encouraging starts. Gavin Sheets hit 308 with a homer and two doubles in his first week. And Sebi Zavala has an 11.02 OPS, although he also struck out 11 times over 24 plate appearances. It's hard to tell how much of the good offense and bad pitching is due to Truist Field's cozy dimensions, but Zavala hadn't hit there before, so that's something. Jake Berger is scuffling to start the season, but he came through with a hit on Sunday in the form of a two-run homer. The more important thing is that he's playing full games. The Winston-Salem Dash enjoyed a walk-off victory on Mother's Day to raise their record to 2-4, and, and that's representative of a roster that has had some hits and misses. Luis Corbello went 5-16 for 16 with four extra base hits, an exciting start for a guy who was demoted out of Kannapolis the last time we saw him. Luis Mieses also generated surprising power for a guy who hadn't shown it in rookie ball, with a homer, triple, and double among his five hits. Yolbert Sanchez drew four walks to go along with six hits in his first six games, showing the kind of plate discipline that might make him a candidate for Birmingham sooner rather than later. He's 25, so that'd be nice. The Dash's pitching has been decent. It's been nice to see Luke Schilling and Isaiah Carranza throw their first professional pitches after Tommy John surgery and the pandemic caused them to lose multiple seasons at the starts of their careers. Jason Billis racked up eight strikeouts over four and two-thirds innings in his first high-A start, and Davis Martin shrugged off an ugly debut with a better second outing. The Kannapolis Cannon ballers are bringing up the rear at 0-6, although that record obscures a few really nice starts. Jose Rodriguez is impressed early, hitting 407 with four doubles, a triple, and a homer over his first 11 hits. Brian Ramos is starting to heat up, raising his average to .292 after five hits over his last two games. James Beard and Sam Abbott are keeping their heads above water as well. It isn't even that bad on the pitching front. Bailey Horn led the way with four scoreless innings in his pro debut, and Matthew Thompson and Yoel Van Silvan each had moments. On the other side, Jared Kelly wasn't able to complete one inning in his pro debut, and Andrew Dahlquist has walked four over his first three and one-thirds innings. Looking ahead, all four affiliates hit the road this upcoming week. The Knights head to Norfolk, the Barons to Pensacola, the Dash to Hickory, and the Cannonballers to Fayetteville. That's it for the Meyer League Report.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
1: Welcome back to the Sox Machine podcast. The Chicago White Sox are back home starting play on Tuesday as they welcome the Minnesota Twins for the first time in 2021. We had circled these dates on the calendar before the 2021 season because everything that we knew as far as roster construction, how these two teams played against each other in 2021, we were expecting these series to be marquee seasons in the 2021 season, deciding on who will win the American League Central. That still might be the case. However, it's only the Chicago White Sox that have held up their end. The Minnesota Twins, surprisingly, are 12-20, and and they, in a lot of ways, deserved that record. And they had a rainout on Sunday against the Detroit Tigers, which they lost on Saturday to Detroit. So, this is not a good Minnesota Twins team at the moment. They have lost Byron Buxton as he's dealing with a right hip flexor injury, not as severe as Luis Robert, but it's unknown on how long Byron Buxton's going to be out. And he's been one of the best players in all of Major League Baseball. And the pitching problems for this series between the Chicago White Sox and the Minnesota Twins starting on Tuesday, May 11th. This is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Kenta Maeda for the Twins against Dylan Cease. One would think that this would be a tough matchup for the White Sox, but Maeda has a 5.02 ERA this season and hasn't been pitching well. On Wednesday, May 12th, this is again a 7.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Dallas Keuchel for the White Sox against Jay Happ, J-Hap has been one of the best starting pitchers for the Minnesota Twins this year. He's got a 1.91 ERA, but the White Sox have a lot of success against J-Hap. And on Thursday, this is the getaway day for the Twins, as this will be a 1.10 p.m. Central Time start. It is Michael Pineda for Minnesota against Carlos Rodon. And Jim, we talked about as far as ranking the starting rotation from a Minnesota Twins preview They're kind of getting the short end of the stick because they're facing two hot hands in this series and Dylan Cease and Carlos Rodon. But for for from a White Sox fan perspective, looking into this series, it does circle back to when are the Minnesota Twins going to wake up and will they wake up in the 2021 season? And. Everything early was, man, the bullpen is terrible. Alex Colome is a double agent for the White Sox. He's blowing all of these games. Their defense has been terrible late in games. We saw the <laughs> fiasco that happened in Oakland. But the starting rotation, I mentioned that Jay Happ has been pitching really well, but Kenta Maeda hasn't. And in the last 13 games, the Twins' starting rotation has a 4.54 ERA, and they've allowed 21 home runs. So the starting rotation now is starting to not pitch as well as we thought that they would. How do you gauge the Minnesota Twins right now?
2: Well, you know, it's they're still dangerous to me. Um, They just, you know, they have a lot of name brand talent that has done before and has torched the White Sox before. Like Pineda has pitched well against the White Sox. Hap has the kind of arsenal that works well against the White Sox. Maeda has been tough. And Maeda, you know, through his first scoreless outing of the season last time, you know, he had the kind of strikeout stuff he had last year. So I'm not writing him off completely. He might have just had a bad month. So I think the White Sox are seeing three difficult starters here, three starters they have to respect. I think Happen in particular has been like one of those just underappreciated players, just a good three to four win pitcher every year. And, uh, you know, ERA, I'm looking, just let me look at his numbers real quick from baseball reference. Yeah, over the last, since 2015, you know, he's got an ERA of uh, ERA plus of 115, so 15% better than the league average, like he's, uh, yeah, 35 games over 500, 74 and 39, so I mean, like he's he's delivered what teams have needed from him, basically, you know, every year for the last, uh, or for every year of his late 30s, basically, so, you know, I respect what he has to offer, but it just seems right now that the twins just they it's it's if it's not one thing it's another like it's kind of like whack-a-mole when it comes to a guy get back in the lineup uh, a guy gets hurt or a guy gets COVID or they have a COVID cluster or you know you know Byron Buxton is carrying the team then he has the hip flexor injury uh, the starting pitching is doing well enough uh, huge uh, poorly timed bullpen collapses by guys they're counting on not just you know, Alex Cullomay, but Tyler Duffy has been pretty bad too. And and he's been a big arm for them in the past. So, uh, you know, they they have enough talent to where like, and and the way they've lost games, it's kind of like the inverse of the Royals. The the way the Royals won really freaky games, the Twins lost those games. And so I can see a situation where they have the opposite luck of the Royals and win eight straight all of a sudden to get back into it. Um, But just for the time being, they, there's enough wobbling underneath the surface, and there's just enough injury problems to where the White Sox can't extend their miseries. They just have to, I think, endure like the first six innings of decent starting pitching.
1: Yeah, Nelson Cruz is Nelson Cruz still. He's got eight home runs in the year, 21 RBIs hitting 294 with a 350 on base percentage and slugging 550 Josh Donaldson is still Josh Donaldson hitting 290 with a 375 on base percentage, slugging 507. Uh there's Kyle Garlick, which if you don't know much about him, he hasn't been getting a ton of playing time, but he's slugging over 500. He's providing some power. Alex Kriloff was providing power, as it seemed like he only hits home runs uh, for the Minnesota Twins. He's got a .214 batting average, a .227 on base percentage, but slugging .571. He seems to be the opposite of Yasmani Grandal. Uh, but you know, outside of Cruz and Donaldson it does appear that you can pitch around those two in this lineup and, and limit as far as the damage as of late Jorge Polanco suddenly is not the hitter that he was a few years ago for the Minnesota twins. And uh, again, this lineup would be a lot more dangerous with Byron Buxton. I mean, Buxton was just off to a tremendous start. He's already at 2.4 war in fan hmm. graphs, which is just insane. Like he was on a pace to have a very special season and, you know, for the Twins' sake, they really need Byron Buxton back in this lineup. But how do you feel this series could go for the White Sox and their first time facing the Twins in 2021?
2: It feels like they could go two out of three. I think the thing I'm going to be watching is home runs. Um, that That's the one area that the Twins have a huge advantage, and we've seen uh, a number of Twins' White Sox games get swung by just – uh, you know, who can put the ball over the fence. The Twins have 44 homers this year. Uh, The White Sox, and I'm looking, 44 homers right now is good for fifth in the league, but only four off the league lead. The White Sox have 27. They're four off uh, from the uh, next team up, which is the Royals. And we saw the way the Royals were hitting. So the fact that the White Sox have four fewer homers than them is a little bit disconcerting. Um, So, so that's, I guess, the column I'm going to be looking at this series and, and just... You know should the twins be able to strike for homers here's you know I guess the idea would be that uh, there will be few over them on base you know they, they they have had some guys who are kind of all or nothing or hitting homers and not walking and uh, the White Sox are walking and not hitting homers it's a little bit odd but uh, it's been a combination working for them so far just more, more of a matter of like when you have three isolated games uh, that home run uh, disparity can uh, loom large if the White
1: Sox can't start closing it now. Well, if the White Sox do win this series, two out of three, like you mentioned, Jim. That would put them at 21-14 and 14 before having a four-game in three days against the Kansas City Royals, with Friday being a doubleheader to make up one of the postponement games from April. And uh, I, they would be chugging along with the gauntlet, so I'm with you. Yeah. I, I think the White Sox <laughs> could win this series.
2: Well, I'm looking at the twin schedule, and... They have it just as hard. From here, they go from from the White Sox series. They go to uh, they play Oakland, then they play the White Sox again. Then a doubleheader crammed into an original off day against the Angels, mm. followed by three more with Cleveland. So that's that's difficult. And then you know they they kind of soften up with the Orioles and the Royals the following week after that. But that's that's a tough stretch for a time where they need to start. You know they could really you know it would behoove them to pile up wins. And here's hoping the White Sox get in their way early.
1: Yeah, I mean, if the White Sox win two out of three against the Twins, the White Sox are going to have an eight-game lead on Minnesota before we even get to Memorial Day. We're not even—we're still a couple weeks away. If the White Sox sweep the tw- Twins, we're talking a 10-game lead yeah, I was, for the White Sox. Sorry, I was looking at the uh,
2: Twins' schedule. like uh, Starting like the last full week of May, they play the Orioles and Royals, and then I flipped over the calendar to uh, June, and they play the Orioles and Royals. So that's a two-week stretch where the Twins can get back into it uh, if,
1: uh, you know, they, they they aren't flattened by the next uh, 14 days. Well, hopefully the White Sox continue to play as well as they did coming home from Kansas City after the off day. And we'll see. I mean, this is going to be a big series for the Twins. They really need this series. And for the White Sox... I think this would be a great opportunity for them to really stake their claim early in the American League Central and let the other teams in the division know that they're not going to fade in the 2021 race. Jim and I will be recapping the White Sox Twin Series on Sox Machine Live Thursday night on May 13th on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. You could also watch the show on soxmachine.com. And if you can't watch the show live, no worries. We'll have the podcast... We'll have the show, the audio version, uploaded into the podcast feed after we stream live on Thursday night. So you can look forward to that. But speaking of looking forward, we are looking forward to answer your guys' questions, which you guys had quite a few for us this week. So let's answer them next in P.O. Sox.
0: You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox.
1: Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's PO Sox, where our PO Sox questions this week come from our Patreon supporters, because you guys are crazy with the questions that we are getting in, not just for this episode, but for a previous episode uh, where I sat down with Jim Callis talking about the White Sox Top 30 Prospects and... The early thoughts of the 2021 Major League Baseball draft. We got a ton of questions from you guys. We even got more questions again from you uh, for this week's PO Sox. And we even answered some earlier on the show. So again, if you would like to participate and ask us questions and topics that you'd like us to answer on the show, go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up today. And the first question that we have comes from Andrew Siegel, Jim. And Andrew's asking, did I see slash here, Josh suggests the White Sox should trade for Chris Bryant. Is that a pie in the sky plan or a legit avenue for an outfield upgrade? And yes, Andrew, I said that on Saturday when I joined Mark Grody on 670 The Score because, again, 670 The Score is the home of the Chicago Cubs. There's a lot of Cubs fans that listen to that station. Of course, there's a lot of White Sox fans that listen to that station. But this is already a drum beat from the offseason, maybe even from last year. Uh, And especially after Luis Robert got hurt and the way that Chris Bryant has been hitting the ball that there's a lot of White Sox fans that would like to see Rick Hahn pick up the phone and make a deal work with Jed Hoyer to have Chris Bryant go from the north side to the south side as it's still unclear what the Chicago Cubs are trying to achieve in the 2021 season. I think that there's a legit avenue for a Chris Bryant trade, but Jim, I want to ask you first, what do you think about that possibility? Do you think the White Sox need a player like Chris Bryant to at least win the 2021 American League Central?
2: They might not need him just because just... When you, when you look at the, the way the Twins have struggled with injuries, you would see the way the Royals are struggling with their pitching staff, the way the Cleveland is a little bit thin and unproven, that I think every team is fighting their own problems that seem insurmountable or like a, a, a bomb waiting to explode. So. Yeah, the White Sox aren't comfortable, but I don't think any American League team, or yeah, maybe any American League team, certainly AL Central team and maybe others just aren't supremely comfortable right now. And so I don't know if he's necessary to win the Central. I will say that his, you know, his skill set just fits very well. Like he wouldn't be an unnecessary audition or uh, addition, I should say, um, to the team, like he would fit in right field. Adam Eaton wouldn't be necessary in right field if he's looking as uh, uh, just old, I guess would be the way to say. It. Like uh, just with the, you know, leg injuries can make a guy look old. Uh, and and right now he's, he's just looking off like that. So if he struggles with, you know, that knee injury and with the swing he's trying to implement with it and is looking like a liability right, like he would fit in well. And then you have Eaton as an extra outfielder. You don't feel bad about having it on the bench when you're trying to win, and it would fit just more of a matter of I think for a guy like him, uh, trading for a rental like that, you tend to need more farm depth than uh, you you uh, like. It tends to come from depth, like uh, teams acquiring that kind of player tend to trade guys they don't need. And I don't know if there's a farm system that the uh, farm player that the White Sox uh,
1: don't need that other teams would want. So. I quasi I had this conversation with Jim Callis in the previous episode talking about the prospects, because I think it was also Andrew asking Jim Callis, like if you were a rival GM, who would you be asking for if the white Sox picked up the phone and said that they would like to acquire your player. And he mentioned the prep pitchers, Jared Kelly, Matthew Thompson, and Andrew Siegel. Uh, Not, not Andrew Siegel. I'm sorry. Andrew Dahlquist. (laughs) Uh, And I think, with the way, that the, the way this season is set up, you have the Major League Baseball draft in mid-July, and then two weeks later, you have the trade deadline. Right now, the Chicago Cubs are hovering around 500, so maybe they don't want to pull the plug yet. On the 2021 season, they want to give it a couple more months um, before they have a better idea of whether or not they can win the National League Central, and if that's realistic, and if it's not, then, yeah, they can quickly shift in a different direction and start trading away guys, they know that they're not going to be able to sign to long-term deals. And when it comes to Chris Bryan and the Chicago Cubs, I, I do think you can center a trade around Matthew Thompson. And I know that hurts the White Sox as far as depth-wise, but you do have the Major League Baseball draft in July, and you could replace Matthew Thompson with one, whomever you selected the first three rounds. Sure, it'd be better to stack up multiple Prep talent arms like Matthew Thompson uh, to improve as far as your farm system, but whomever you are trading away, I think you could replace in your first three round picks in this year's upcoming Major League Baseball draft. And who knows, maybe who the White Sox select in the first round instantly becomes their number one prospect because the farm system isn't all that good, folks. Uh, so that's why I think you can center a, you can start a trade with Matthew Thompson and maybe. Give them Gavin Sheets. He's hitting well in AAA. It does give Jed Hoyer insurance in case Anthony Rizzo decides to change his mind and he doesn't want to stick with the Cubs. Sheets can play first base for the Cubs starting next season, especially if he continues to play the way that he has. And then you have the international, prep pro, uh, the international position player prospects as well. I don't think I would trade Jose Rodriguez at this moment, but maybe the Cubs are interested in Brian Ramos or... Benjamin Bailey uh, that is an intriguing international prospect that they can add into the mix. And, you know, White Sox fans would say, no way, you can't trade three players for Chris Bryant just to have him in August and September. But you have to remember the White Sox are not going to be the only team bidding for Chris Bryant's services. Uh, so you have to make an offer that's better than whatever, whatever other team is going to offer to Jed Hoyer. Cause Hoyer's not going to tell you what other offers he's getting. So I think that's the best offer that I can make from a White Sox perspective for a three month rental of Chris Bryant.
2: Yeah. It's, I just see it tough just because like the, the guys, the White Sox have are, you know, I'm thinking like when it comes to the high school pitchers, like they're, they're high school pitchers, and they're also, like, having really aggressive pro debuts to the point where, like, you know, if if Thompson and Dahlquist and, you know, Jared Kelly get roughed up a little bit, you know, it won't cause panic, but it also won't inspire a whole lot of, like, immediate confidence, and another team coming in with more farm depth, especially like certain positions that play better in the National League, um, you know, would be able to top that offer, and then, as you mentioned, the White Sox would have to kind of go with a quality thing, or a quantity thing. Uh, you know, with a prep pitcher, an international player, and then maybe el- somebody else that's kind of in their, their log jam at uh, first base DH. But it would seem like, you know, if they were trying to... I don't think any one player they could trade would make them uncomfortable. I just think that they would have to, like, include so many players that the Cubs would hit on a couple of them. <laughs> and The White Sox would want some of that quantity back into their own system. So that's why I don't see it being a great fit for a trade. It's a great fit for a talent. Mm-hmm. But just uh, in terms of... Uh, teams being able to beat that deal. I'm thinking of like the way the Padres just had more to offer another team than the white Sox did for all the trades they made.
1: Yeah. I I agree with you. You're hoping that nobody else is calling the Cubs (laughs) about Chris Bryant, but we know that's not reality. Uh, Sounds like the angels are interested in Chris Bryant. I get that because Anthony Rendon has been on the injured list a couple times already this season. Uh, and, of course, you have that Joe Madden connection as well uh, with Chris Bryant. But if I, that, is, that shouldn't stop Rick Hahn and shouldn't stop the White Sox from at least trying. And as you mentioned, Jim, from a production standpoint, Chris Bryant would be a good fit. Andrew, it's probably pie in the sky just because of what the White Sox can offer to trade. But I don't think that should dissuade the White Sox from at least trying to trade for chris Bryant, they may not be successful but i still think it would be a good target for the white Sox, especially if they're trying to add an impact player to this lineup and chris Bryant's raking right now so andrew thank you so much for your question our next question comes from brian dolan and he is pumped up jim brian writes to us what a sweep quick question about bullpen management but 30-ish games in are we seeing any trends from tony larusa ethan katz And is there any difference from Rick Renteria and Don Cooper in terms of usage? Let's keep it going. See, Brian is super excited after this weekend, Jim. But what about the bullpen management?
2: I think there are a couple differences right now with the way... Uh, Tony LaRusse and Ethan Katz are managing the pitching staff. We talked about it before with Michael Kopek. I think his usage, his creative, flexible deployment is something that maybe Rick Rentry and Don Cooper wouldn't have been able to do or wouldn't have felt comfortable doing. Uh, you know, throwing him for multiple innings as a bridge, then starting him, then putting him back in the bullpen and not really freaking out about it. Just treating it as like, uh, oh, you know, opportunities there. He's rested. Let's go for it. So I like seeing that. I think that's to a lesser degree with. Uh, Garrett Crochet although Crochet you know he had pitched a couple multiple inning outings for the White Sox or was going to during the um, uh, game three and just you know his forearm didn't hold up so that's one of them I think the other thing that you know seems to be a trend is that LaRusso likes making pitching changes with two outs Um, I guess that's the way he looks at the three batter minimum is like he likes having the option of not needing a reliever to face three batters if he can get out with one out and then I guess assess the situation at the end of the next half inning. Um, Otherwise I think when it comes to the you know I guess how he's handling it it's hard to tell just because Renteria got better performances and I guess if you want to put any of that on, on him or Ethan Katz you know just the way certain guys have uh, taken steps back in what they've been able to do for the White Sox, then you know that's one thing. But just in terms of you know how he would go about managing if all these guys were pitching the way they had before, I don't think there'd be too much different. I think the game where he, uh, the opener of the KC series where he had Cody Hoyer and then Aaron Bummer and then Liam Hendricks uh, all pitching successive innings, I think that's generally how he'd like to do it. And I think it's how every manager would like to do it, paint by numbers. So should there be rebounds for Hoyer and you know Evan Marshall or Matt Foster and then Aaron Bummer looks great so he's like the one guy I think who's looking the way he should the rest of the guys I think are still trying to figure it out but you know should you know they reach a critical mass of relievers pitching the way we've seen them pitch then I think uh beyond Kopech and maybe Crochet and those flex roles there's not gonna be a whole lot of difference I think it's just gonna be um you know do those guys stay healthy and if they don't then I think uh we'll see La Russa thrust into the emergency situations that Renteria had to deal with late last year.
1: Well, let's keep the conversation about the White Sox bullpen going. Brian, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from as rec and as rec is asking, should we be forgetting Evan Marshall?
2: Uh, I think with the way the bullpen is shaped and with the way that Charlotte really has nobody knocking on the door to take any kind of important innings for the White Sox that a guy like Marshall can, you know, be shifted into low leverage uh, work. You know, maybe, like, move him down to the Jose Ruiz role and then move Ruiz up and then move Matt Foster up, who's pitched a little bit better, and see what you look at. But, yeah, Marshall does not look right right now. And when you look at his, like, pitches, you know, when you look at his um, usage and when you look at his uh, velocity – Nothing's terribly off there, but just like the the first strike percentage is way down, the ground ball percentage is way down, the swinging strike percentage is way down, and it just seems like uh, you know the it seems like a few things. The curveball location has been hittable. like he he doesn't have a swinging strike on his curveball yet, which is uh, surprising. Uh, the changeup, yeah, you know, a lot of the changeup seem like waste pitches. They don't seem really compelling, uh, like swing and miss pitches, and like when he gets into two strike counts, it's not really putting hitters away with him the way uh, with change the way he did the year before. So there's that. And the fastball is like, you know, I think the fastball has been okay for him. It just when he's operating the way he should, he's a three-pitch pitcher and he basically throws each pitch a third of the time. When he has to rely on the fastball more than that, uh, that's where the contact starts getting to be too frequent. And that's just, you know, when you look at the exit velocities and such, like he's not getting torched. It's just a combination of more walks and then more contact and more contact being useful for the opponents and, and 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 killing Marshall. So it's it's a tough situation because you don't exactly what's wrong, like what he needs to fix. Like it's a bunch of uh, fine point things. And on one hand, it's like well, he's not. It doesn't seem like there's anything physically preventing him from being better. So you should stick with him and keep going. But it is hard to watch him in situations that you know you're counting on him for to get out. So. That's why I wouldn't mind seeing like Foster slide up and, and, and Marshall slide down. And, you know, if Jose Ruiz keeps pitching decently, like, yeah, you know, maybe give Ruiz a shot in those mid-leverage situations too. And, you know, save Marshall for, you know, situations where you can kind of see if the curveball's back, if the changeup is there. But he's just a little bit off in a lot of ways to where just high leverage or anything resembling the situations he was thrown into
1: last year. Uh, it's not really a comfortable look. As in rec, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Sambore. And Mark is asking, last week, Kevin Goldstein of Fangraphs and formerly the Astros front office was a guest on another podcast. When asked how he would grade the White Sox rebuild, he said, they crushed it. Do you share the same opinion? I think that's a, a bit too high. I think they crushed the rebuild trades.
2: I think they did probably yes. as well as you can on the big trades that made it happen. Um, when it comes to the rest of it, like the just the depth, the lack of farm depth is like they didn't seem to, uh, you know, make hay with the high draft picks and the amount of draft resources they had, and the international uh, signings just haven't really you know materialized yet. So, you know, maybe that's a couple of years down the line to where maybe Marco Patty's name will be coming up more often, and, and guys who deserve credit for building depth right now just you know the the you know the Padres they're a team that crushed the rebuild I think you can't use the same word to describe uh you know those two teams I think the White Sox did you know did well did you know did okay did decently on the rebuild as a whole but it's still a little bit like it feels like they still need to like capitalize on this season specifically in order to get to the next level of spending and resources that Rakan didn't have this winter. I think the Padres, like they got to the point and it's part of, you know, partially a difference in ownership too, but I think ownership does factor in, in how well a rebuild works. Uh, the Padres got to the point where, you know, they had the depth of trade and they had the resources to add and <laughs> both uh, turn into a really scary roster. The White Sox just didn't quite get there. They have a glut at certain positions. They have uh, you know, kind of a, a, a cluster of first base DH types that need to solve. Um, but they did well. Um, but crush, I think is, is an
1: oversell. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I agree with that. The White Sox rebuild is going well so far. They have one playoff appearance. They're currently in first place in, in their second year, but when we're talking about like crushing rebuilds, like the Chicago Cubs have set the standard of crushing rebuilds <laughs> Like that's that's the bar, especially the city of Chicago for the White Sox. And you mentioned ownership. Man, I don't know about you, but I keep getting hit up with questions about, well, should the White Sox talk about a contract extension with Carlos Serdan They can try, but Carlos Serdan's agent is Scott Boris, mm-hmm. and if Jose Quintana and Corey Kluber and James Paxton are getting 10, 11 million dollar a season contracts, Uh, Carlos Rodon continues to throw like this. He's going to make at least that. And now you got some saying, well, maybe the White Sox have to slap the qualifying offer on Carlos Rodon. And maybe that is the case. But it kind of goes back to Jerry Reinsdorf. And in order for this rebuild to have the dividends and pay out like the Cubs had from, what, 2015 through even last year, they still made the postseason. Uh, in order to have that type of success, Jerry Reinsdorf is going to either have to change his spending habits, or Jerry Reinsdorf is going to have to sell the team, because the way that Jerry Reinsdorf operates as far as spending right now for the Chicago White Sox team is going to be a hurdle. It just is, because right now you can enjoy Carlos Rodon, but is Carlos Rodon going to be on the 2022 White Sox? We don't know. He's a free agent. Lance Lynn is a free agent. We don't know if he's coming back. Jose Abreu is gonna be a free agent in a couple of years. And by the yeah. time that you think that the White Sox should be in the middle of the contention window, guys that are on the roster now are gonna be free agents. So who's gonna replace them? Well, we just had the conversation with Jim Callis. It's not gonna be anyone soon from the farm system. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, right now, I would just advise to White Sox fans, enjoy 2021 to the fullest. There are so many uncertainties after this season that it's hard to provide you know grounded answers to. We have we I'd even mention the CBA expiring in December first. That could completely blow everything up. Uh, but right now I'm just trying to enjoy the 2021 season to the fullest and the rebuild has built to this moment to have a successful 2021. But if you're asking how is 2022, 2023, 2024, 2025 going to look, th- that future is hazy for X, Y, Z reasons.
2: Hey, I'm glad you mentioned the, you know, the, the pending contract issues and free agents because, you know, I mentioned the Padres and some people might say, well, the White Sox have a better record than the Padres better run differential. Like what's so great about the Padres? And I think the thing about the Padres is, you know what the team's going to look like next year. Yes. Like, you know, who's going to be there, you know, who's coming up from the farm system, you know, who they still have, like who can help, uh, you know, who can be traded again for more help. Like the White Sox, what they have now is what they have now and filling in blanks next year is not easy. So that's why it doesn't feel like they crushed the rebuild. They, they you know, they, they got to this point, they did well to get to this point, but uh, and the Cubs, you know, they, they, they capitalized in one glorious season and had trouble to, uh, maintain it but you know that's not a problem with the rebuild that's a problem with like learning to let go like learning to trade a Kyle Schwarber or you know just uh, you know adjust the roster with guys they fell in love with and I I think it's uh, you know kind of uh, that's you know the, what, what happened afterwards and like how they weren't able to get to another World Series it's a different like stage of a team but yeah the rebuild they got there and they still had resources well after the World Series with the White Sox like if they get to the postseason this year, hopefully what I'm counting on, or at least, you know, how I think about Jerry Reinsdorf is like, he typically raises payroll when revenue comes up. He spends to a break-even amount. He doesn't spend money to make money. And if the White Sox can have a a postseason run, a deep one, and they look like a team that's going to have a big season ticket base the following year, then I think the spending will come up, but it's still spending. They have to do the patch holes that are immediately there. Right. And that's that's why I don't feel like... Yeah, you're not it. making
1: upgrades, right? you may you're yeah. going to have to patch holes that are in the roster or Rick Hahn's going to have to for this upcoming off season. But again, again though, that's that's October, late October, November worries. I I really recommend for White Sox fans to not look too far down the road and just enjoy the 2021 season to the fullest because Jim and I are going to have some pretty not fun conversations come November. If things do not go well between the owners and the players association, and I don't want to think about that right now. That's 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 mm-hmm. six months away, Josh, and Jim, future problem. Uh, that's not a problem right now to really uh, deep dive into at this moment. So uh, Jim and I slightly disagree with Kevin Goldstein, but the White Sox rebuild has built to this moment. And right now, after the first 32 games of the season, it's looking good for the White Sox. They're 19-13 and in first place in the American League Central. We'll see how the future is going to be built out for the White Sox. We'll have those conversations in the fall. But Mark, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for po socks if you have a question or topic that you would like jim and i to tackle in a future episode of the socks machine podcast again the best way to doing it is becoming a friend of socks machine by signing up at patreon.com slash socks machine where we have several different tiers of support at two dollars three dollars five dollars and ten dollars a month where you get an ad-free version of the podcast, you get an ad-free version of the website, you get exclusive content, you get bonus content, like the bonus PO Sox questions that Jim and I answer, only for our Patreon supporters. Uh, and you also get first crack, crack at Sox Machine swag. So again, if you enjoy our work and you want more, go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up. Today. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. Again, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. You can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also su- subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash machine The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of Soxmachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening.